Tired of trying to run your office from home? The Mill Enterprise Hub in Drogheda offers hot desking and office solutions in a supportive startup community for businesses and remote workers. They provide members with 24-7 access, free car parking, 1 gigabit broadband, meeting rooms, soundproof pods for all your Zoom calls, mentoring, podcasting and vlogging facilities. There's no lengthy contracts. Oh, and did we mention there's free tea and coffee too? Email us today to arrange your tour at startup at The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. This is News Talk. Good morning and welcome to The Home Show with me, Sinead Ryan. Coming up this morning, the notion of house robots once seemed like fantasy sci-fi, but they're increasingly common these days. Home of the Year winner Jennifer Sheehan joins me to tell me about all of the ways robots can help make our lives less of a chore. We'll be looking at the influence Japanese culture has had and will continue to have on Western culture from bonsai trees to sprinkler systems in your loo. And resident architect Roisin Murphy will be looking at lacquer in the home and we'll have some top home renovation tips using scant materials and a few bob you might have lying around. You can get in contact with us on The Home Show at 53106 for 30 cent by text or you can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. And remember, at any stage you can listen live or listen back to the show and all of our podcasts which are up on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. You're very welcome along, folks, this morning. Uh, one of my favourite books in the last year was Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. I don't know if you read it, but it's absolutely absolutely fabulous. Uh, set in the very near future when children have an android friend to help them through life. Now it's a little unsettling at first and Clara who's the robot is also learning as she goes but it's an insight into where some people believe the world is heading and as it happens we're going to be talking about robots and robotic devices in a bit uh, and they're still in their infancy of course but if a robot can clean your floor and mow your lawn and make your tea well it can't be long before they're greeting us at the door and um, they're currently being used very extensively in businesses and hotels and even nursing homes uh, so I don't know how I quite feel about that. Uh, so I want to ask you this morning uh, before I get to Jen our first guest uh, all about this would you have a robot in your home and if so what would you most like it to do for you? Would it be your laundry? Would it be the hoovering, making the dinner? Let me know. Text us here, 53106 on The Home Show. And you can find us on email at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. And if, on the other hand, you've made your own tea, well, sit back and enjoy the next hour. You're very welcome along. King of robots and all things robotic, um, there are lots and lots of things that are available around the house now that, of course, would have seemed maybe space age in years gone by. Uh, so to take a look at what's available and also maybe with an eye on the future about what help we can expect. Who better than Jennifer Sheehan, uh, Home of the Year winner. Jennifer, you're very, very welcome back to the home show. You have been looking at all things robotic Um and actually, you already have a work colleague who is an android. Tell me about that. <laughs> I do. I've peppered the robot. Any of my colleagues listening will be rolling their eyes because we're, she's not our favourite colleague. She's, she's, not as, she's not as useful as we'd like her to be. Uh, but we do have, we do have uh, the, the Rosie the Robot version from the Jetsons is, is what we have in our office. 
Okay. Now, of course, the Jetsons, for anybody who can't remember the Jetsons, this is like, uh, this was a cartoon, uh, very, very popular. It was like the Space Age Flintstones and absolutely a fabulous program. And they had all the gadgets that we wish we could have. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that and the kind of things that they they featured. We have a lot of them, actually. So the Jetsons was set in 2036, I found out which isn't too far away. And actually, a lot of the stuff, this is really, you know, an example of life imitating art. A lot of the stuff that they have, we already have. So first and foremost, we have the washing machine. And while that might sound very simple and everyone has one and, you, you know, you, you forget what a major, major invention this was. This has been called by many the greatest invention of the Industrial Revolution because it freed up so much of women's time and allowed a massive amount of labour to enter the workforce. And actually people, you know, it's quite an indicator still of poverty. There's still about 5 billion people worldwide that don't have access to washing machines. And that, you know, that can keep them trapped in, in a cycle, unfortunately, of, of, of poverty. But so something, as you're looking at, at your humble washing machine in the corner of your home, it's a good time to remember that, you know, this really was a huge enabler of, of what we're all able to do today, which is spend much more time at work <laughs> and doing the things that we love doing. Indeed, because laundry itself and doing laundry um, was certainly something that was incredibly labour intensive. And women right up to the 1940s, probably right up to the Second World War, would yeah. have had a laundry day at scrubbing and cleaning and and sheets out to be cleaned. And it was it took an enormous amount of time, even with the likes of housemaids and help. It took absolutely hours. And so they've been trying to invent something since around the mid 1800s. And there was a number of great inventions, but there wasn't enough power. There wasn't enough electrical power. Um, and there was lots of electrical shocks. <laughs> but around after World War II, actually, you know, Electrolux and another few companies saw the potential in the washing machine to take those hours and hours and hours out of the weeks of, of women and, and household labor. Um, and so, yeah, in around the 40s, it really took off. Now, the dishwasher, of course, is another kitchen uh, appliance that we're all very used to. Most houses have one, but it's still um, a huge labour saving device. How did that come about? Huge. Yeah, the dishwasher. I love, I couldn't live in a house without a dishwasher. I just hate doing the dishes. So <laughs> this was actually invented. It was the brainchild. Now, there was, there was a few, but the main one we have today, um, a very successful one in the 1800s, again, the 1880s by a woman called Josephine Cochrane. Uh, and she was very fussy about her china. And she didn't like her china being broken. She didn't want anybody dropping anything. She was very, very protective of it. And so she had a, a brilliant idea and got together with a mechanic and invented a hand-powered dishwasher. And actually, she unveiled it at, at the, the big World Fair in Chicago, which, you know, the 1890s but very futuristic, very Jetsons-y, all sorts of really cool inventions unveiled there. So, so that is the, the origin of the washing machine that we have today. One of the, I suppose, uh, most popular gifts, Christmas presents, wedding presents of the last few years has been the Roomba. The so Roomba. this is the yoke that runs around your house hoovering it or mows your lawn in, in a different emanation of it. Do you have one of those? I have one of those. Couldn't live without it, especially <laughs> if you've got a pet in the house. They're absolutely brilliant for just that kind of quick daily sweep of picking up the hairs and picking up the little bits of dust. And if you have any kind of allergies or anything like that, it's brilliant as well for getting dust out. Mine mops as well. So mine isn't the Roomba. Mine is the Kaival, I think it is, which is pretty good. It mops as well, so you can let it loose in the bathroom and it does its thing. And it just, it 
you know, I don't know if it's as time-saving as a washing machine because two ring vacuum cleaners aren't as backbreaking, but it is definitely something that saves, you know, about 20, 30 minutes per, per every few days, I think, depending on how clean you like your floor is. And they have ones now that cut your grass. So if you're somebody that dreads getting out into the garden in summertime and, go, you know, lugging a big lawnmower up and down the, the, gra- the garden, um, then they have those those robots that cut grass as well, which is a huge time saver. And um, in terms of laundry now, back to laundry, there's even a robot that will fold your clothing for you. Now, are you one of these ironers, Jen? Do you just make sure everything's spick and span? I'm sure you do. I absolutely am not. So this is the foldy mate. So it definitely hasn't gone mainstream yet. There's a couple of issues with it. You still have to load each individual item of clothing and then it's able to pick up what that item is and it folds it perfectly and, and, and then you just put your stack of folded clothes away, which is, which is fine. I do not like any of that work. So I don't own an iron. I refuse to own an iron. What I tend to do is when I'm shopping, I take the fabric of the item of clothing that I'm about to buy and I scrunch it in my hand and if it wrinkles, that is not the item of clothing for me and I just won't buy it. I have a small kind of little handheld steamer that if I really need to get wrinkles out of something, I'll use that. But I know I'm not one for ironing and folding. Are you? I am. I'm afraid I am. I, I'm one of those people now who pretty much iron everything. Um, I can't bear not to iron sheets, for instance. Even the old towel. <laughs> Ah, be known on. to be art, which is pretty sad. Mind you, I don't do an awful lot of housework otherwise, so I find it therapeutic and restful. Uh, say, if there was a, a robot that I could have in the house, I think it would be one that wouldn't so much do my ironing and folding for me. It would be one that would be able to discern uh, which clothes go in which basket for which what because I had a disaster uh, a couple of weeks ago beautiful cashmere grey cashmere jumper I have on unfortunately on the whitewash uh, and the whole thing I, th- I don't think it would even fit your little doggy now <laughs> <laughs> never mind me it's absolutely ruined so um, with that in mind maybe you'll take a little bit of time to decipher some of those labels for us I chuck everything in at the same wash I've had that mistake happen. It's not something I will ever be doing to myself again because I've ruined, you know, favorite sweaters and things that I've spent way too much money on, which is why I'm probably more careful now about what I'll, you know, buy in the future. Anyway, the clothing labels, they're actually not that difficult to discern, even though they look a bit like gobbledygook. But there's really, there's five. There's five main labels for washing, drying, bleaching, ironing, and dry cleaning. And that's kind of it. And then once you know, you know, what the, what the various symbols within them are, they're pretty easy to discern. Now, what you can do is, first of all, maybe record this show and listen back to us every time you're about to do your laundry. That's an option. But I think there's some really lovely posters out there, you know, nice prints that have actually all of those clothing labels spelled out and laid out for you. And so you can just check that, you know, maybe you hang it in your laundry or on the inside door if you don't want it on display of, of your washing machine or something like that. I've seen them on, on Desenio. Um, I actually saw a nice one in Home Store more recently. And you know, you can just check back on that every time you're washing, save you looking it up. But anyway, so there's five labels. So first of all, can you wash it? Can you push it in your washing machine? And that little symbol is the bucket filled up with some water. And then within that symbol, you have temperatures, which are displayed by dots. So if it's one dot, you can wash it at 30 degrees. If it's two dots, you can wash it at 40. And if it's four dots, you can wash it at 60. And so that's just really just go by the number of dots from, from kind of hot 
less the more is, is hot is cold to hot basically about the, about how hot you can wash it. Okay. Now that's already complicated. So I have to know in advance that that little bucket means that. And then sometimes there's a hand in the bucket. Yeah. Hand in the bucket means means hand wash it. And so most washing machines these days will will have a hand wash cycle. And then there's a few other kind of cryptic symbols in there. So if there's one line under your bucket, it's put it on a synthetic cycle. If there's two lines under your bucket, it's put it on a wool or delicate cycle. So see, this is where you need the poster. It actually does get a little bit complicated after a while. It certainly does. Now, uh, washing is one thing. Drying is another. So can you, um, there are, can you dry it and how do you? Well, you have to dry it, but how do you dry it? So tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, the dryer is an interesting one, actually. And on top of the washing machine, because it does save a huge amount of time and a huge amount of you know, horrible clothes hanging over clothes horses. And that was an, that was an, also around the 1800s as an African-American inventor, George Sampson. Um, and I, I have to thank him because I hate having clothes hanging up around the house. Anyway, can you dry it? So if you can dry it, you'll see a circle in a square. That's the symbol for drying it. So again, the same thing with the dots. There's one dot up to three dots, depending on how hot you can dry it at. So some, you know, I learned this the hard way recently, some clothes, can be dried but only at a very low gentle temperature and some you know kind of like your sheets or your towels you can lash them in at a really high temperature and and off they go um, and the same thing there there's that line underneath it for a synthetic cycle and then there's also two lines for a wool and delicate cycle then it gets a little bit more interesting right so if you can't wash it in the or if you can't dry it in the dryer you'll see two or three vertical lines within the square <laughs> within the circle within the square that means drip dry it. So, you know, they look kind of like lines of water, I guess, kind of falling down. That might be the way you can remember it. But three vertical lines drip uh, dry here. it. If there's one horizontal line, you have to lay it out and dry it flat. So some clothes, you know, you can spread it over a towel or something like that and dry it flat. And then if there's a U-shaped line within the circle, within the square, <laughs> then you hang it up to dry like the rattling bugs and things that I bring. God almighty, you'd need a degree in engineering. Right, bring <laughs> us to the very last one then. And this is the one that I think people need to know because uh, this is the one that kind of indicates how, how you should go about cleaning it or whether you should even buy the garment in the first place. And that's dry cleaning. Okay, so dry cleaning is just a circle, a circle on its own, no squares, nothing else in it. There might be some symbols in it, but we don't need to worry about that. That's all kind of various symbols for, for the dry cleaners to worry about. So if, you, if you're picking up a garment, and the clothing label has just a circle on it, that means every time you want to wash it, you're going to have to send it off to the dry cleaner. And I don't know about everyone listening, that's not worth it to me. <laughs> no, or me either. I thank you so much for doing that. It probably <laughs> took you a week to pull together all that information. And we are very grateful for all your hard work. And I think that poster is probably a great idea so that we can get it all done. It seems to me that sometimes we go backwards instead of forwards. We have all the different gadgets and all the help and we still need uh, uh, to put in an awful lot of time for it. I think maybe you have the right idea in not doing any ironing at all. Jennifer Sheehan, Home of the Year winner. Thank you so much for joining us on The Home Show again with all of that. Thanks for having me. Now, after the break, the Japanese style washlet, otherwise known as the loo with the shower, seems to be taking off here in Ireland. But are they any better hygienically or environmentally? Well, we'll be speaking to the man in the know after this short break. Don't go away.
And you're very welcome back to the Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. Now, before the break, I was talking with Jennifer Sheehan about all things robotic. And I'm dying to hear from you what you would want a house Android to do if you had one, whether it's the laundry like we were talking about uh, or something more prosaic like the cooking for you. Well, let me know, 53106. If you want to get in touch today, that'll cost you 30 cent. Or you can email the show at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. Now, the art and care of bonsai is a tradition that goes back hundreds of years. But these striking tiny plants have a reputation for being a bit tricky to take care of. But is that reputation warranted? Well, Maureen Massey, owner of the bonsai shop, joins me now to talk about it. You're very welcome along to the home show, Maureen. Thank you very much. Now, talk to me a little bit about bonsai and its origins. Well, bonsai would have started... In the, around the 14th century, that's the first record of bonsai would, is on a paint uh, a picture scroll in Japan. And that would be the origin, the first bonsai that would have been shown at all. But it started in China, up in the mountains with the Buddhist monks brought plants down to uh, meditate with and to use for herbal reasons, you know, for medicinal reasons. And then in, it moved to Japan. And of course, the Japanese perfected it and turned it into the art form it is today. Now, tell me a little bit about the philosophy behind the care of bonsai, because it's kind of quite holistic, isn't it? Well, I think, particularly in Japan, nature is God. It is, it's their religion. So to try and create, recreate nature in their gardens, with their trees, etc., was considered a spiritual experience. So also... They use it for meditation purposes, but any kind of attention to detail and dealing with nature always has, has a meditative effect. Just tell me a little bit about the plants themselves. These aren't specialised kind of, are they dwarf plants or genetically modified or are they regular plants just grown in a tiny vessel? Well, bonsai happens in nature. It's a perfectly natural thing that occurs with trees. They adapt to the environment that they're in. So. If you go to the west of Ireland, you'll actually see bonsai trees. You'll see little dwarf trees like hawthorn growing on the stone walls in little crevices of rock. So that what happens is that if the tree adapts to its environment. So if it doesn't have an awful lot of soil, it develops a lot of little feeder roots and it just adapts to its environment. It stays small, it doesn't get very big. And you do that with bonsais when you put them into a pot. You trim the roots back. They don't grow big anchor roots. They just keep small, have small little feeder roots and they get their nutrients from the small amount of soil. They stay small and that's, you know, it, it's not an artificial way of doing things. It actually happens in nature with trees. They just adapt to their environment. Well, I'm very interested to hear that now, I must say. You have surprised me because I thought that these were very specialised type of plants. So you're saying that no. the weather in Ireland, the climate here is, is perfectly fine to grow bonsai outdoors. Well, bonsai isn't a particular type of tree. It's actually the art of miniaturising a tree. You can miniaturise an oak, a beech, maples, um, olives, and then, you know, tropical trees as well, figs. So it depends, obviously, on the particular tree, what kind of environment it should be in. So if you've got something like a fig or a Mediterranean tree, if you keep a bonsai, one of those varieties in Ireland, you'll have to keep them inside, certainly through the winter. And with beech and oak and maples and pines and junipers, that you can become, they can, you can convert them into bonsais or you can 
uh, train them into bonsai, you keep them outdoors. So it's, it depends on the particular tree. You can actually grow a bonsai yourself. It's not just a matter of buying an exotic tree in a, a garden center or a nursery. You can actually dig up or, or a little beech tree or tony aster or pyracantha or go to your garden center and you can actually turn that tree into a bonsai. Well, that's very interesting altogether. That would <laughs> yeah. be a, a yeah. project for yeah. people over the weekend, maybe. Yeah. Now, they yeah. do have a, a reputation, uh, Maureen, for being a little bit precious and a little bit difficult yeah. to care for. Is that me being unfair to the bonsai? Well, bonsai need more care than an ordinary house plant because they're in shallower containers, so they dry out much faster because they don't have enough space for, you know, for to, to keep as much soil. So you can't forget about them. So I recommend somebody who's not good. I wouldn't recommend a bonsai for somebody who's not good with plants and tend to forget about them. But anyone who's fairly diligent and can keep an eye on their tree and not let it dry out. But because it's in the smaller container, it will need, need more attention. And also you need to trim it. And that's part of the fun of bonsai. You're not just leaving it take care of itself and just give it the odd bit of water now and then. You can train it and because it lives or can live for such a long time. You can rewire the branches to change the shape. You can trim it to change the shape. You can do lots of, you know, it's an ongoing project. It's not just something that just stays nice or whatever. But you, you can actually keep working on it. So you're making it sound um, as much an art form as as a, a gardening hobby. And you have been well, doing this for a very, very long 30 time. Years. 30 years. <laughs> so do you do you feel an ownership? Is, is it a mindfulness for you or is that a little bit too crass? It's just a, a case of a kind of a gardening outlet for you. Or is it just that uh, you, you're now wedded to these beautiful plants, um, you know, and the way you care for them? Well, I mean, I've always loved plants and I've always loved growing them, but bonsai just completely blew my mind. I just find them absolutely fascinating. Um, they are, and they, it does go away. Over the years, it just continues and you just get more and more fond of taking care of them. I mean, I've got a hawthorn tree that I've had for 25 years that I turned from the Glen of Amal. I turned it from an ordinary tree into a bonsai and... I'm going to pass it on to the next generation. That's what they did in Japan, too. I do in Japan, too, in, in, you know, with, with a lot of families. They pass the bonsai on from generation to generation. So you've got the spirit of going through the, the, the family gene, as it were. So it's, it's you know, that's part of the fun. And tell me, what kind of customers come to you? Is it people who have been, you know, avid gardeners and they want to give this a go? They find it interesting uh, or, or are they just fascinated by the whole art of it? Everybody. <laughs> Over the years, everyone. When I started first, no one knew anything. Very few people knew anything about bonsai. I mean, it just grew and grew over the years. I think it's big interest now. It went, comes in waves. It gets very, very popular for a period of time and then it gets less popular. And a lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of people buy, buy them thinking that they're indestructible because they see bonsai living for so many, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and they think you can forget about them and not have to take too much care of them. And that's not true. It's the care that's, all, that's been taken of them over the, those years that keeps them living that length of time. It's just a real mix. Um, but I think young people now are so interested in plants and fascinated and have such great knowledge of plants now 
um, so that there is a whole new uh, wave of bonsai interests. Okay, Maureen Massey, owner of the Bonsai Shop, uh, and you can find that at, what's the website, Maureen? Bonsaishop.ie Wonderful. All right. And you'll get a whole new raft of people interested in that, especially uh, at the moment. Maureen Massey, owner of the Bonsai Shop. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. Thank you. Now, the humble toilet is obviously an essential part of any bathroom, but we Westerners, are we missing a trick when it comes to the offering that they have in the likes of Japan with their automated flush, sprinkler system, even a blow dry for your bottom? Well, Tony Murphy, bathroom sales manager at Tilestyle, joined me now to talk all things Japanese toilets and the benefits that they bring. Uh, Tony, you're very welcome along to the home show today. Thank you. Now, tell me what it is that one of these Japanese toilets offer that a regular one that we all know does not. Basically, uh, a washless or a Japanese toilet is a toilet with an integrated wand jet that cleans intimate areas with warm water. It has a remote control, makes it possible to select various functions and individual settings, like the position and water pressure of the spray, as well as the temperature. Other comforts include a pre-warm toilet seat and depending on the model, a dryer. Right. Okay. It sounds very advanced altogether. And I wonder, is it is it a little bit of overkill? What are the origins of it? Because these have been on the Japanese market for, an, for quite a long time. Since its launch in probably the 1980s, Toto's wash lip was, has continually evolved through the invention, invention of countless innovative clean technologies. They've almost spread throughout the world a new culture of comfort and cleanliness and they've passed the 50 million units sold worldwide. Right well that makes them sound very very popular and I know possibly some people will have come across them in kind of the posher hotels for instance um, and, and like that idea of all the, the gizmos and gadgets on it. So what kind of this comes now quite tech heavy so there's like a panel of buttons that you have to choose is that the way it is Tony? No it's a very simple remote control the toilet functions as a normal toilet it's just when you want to wash it, 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 it's like whether you wash your hands or your face or your body we always use water on our skin to ensure the best hygiene so why not when using the toilet uh, that you clean intimate areas gently and naturally with warm water did I hear that there's even an option for a little warm air dryer? Yes, and and that's it, it, it just gently dries the area. It reduces the amount of uh, toilet paper that you'd actually use. So for the environment and all of that, it's another thing of uh, sustainability. Right. Now, in terms of then, OK, so that's a little bit of paper conservation. We're all for that. What about energy and water conservation? Is it good in that area? It's very good. Like it, it uses the least amount of water that it possibly can. And in terms of power consumption, probably to run one, 50 euro a year. So do you think this will be the future of toilets in Ireland then eventually? I think eventually everyone will have one. It's just, it's one of those things, once you've actually experienced it, a lot of people describe it as life-changing because they've experienced the soothing comfort of being cleansed with a hygienic stream of water rather than just toilet paper. It's just the way most people will install toilets in the future. 
even if they're doing a toilet at the moment, I, I tell people to be ready to change to this because eventually everyone will, will have to have one. And tell me now about uh, the cost of it. They start around €2,000 and then oh. the most popular one, the Washla SW, is around 4000 Gosh, well, that's not, that's not cheap. If you were to put them in, I don't know how many bathrooms an average house has, certainly maybe an ensuite and a main bathroom and maybe a downstairs loo. You're looking at a serious piece of kit there. But, but what I tell most people to do is to actually install it in the toilet that they use the most so they get the best value from the product. And once they've installed it in this toilet, it, it becomes the natural toilet that people actually go to because they love the experience of using it. Right. OK. Well, we will leave it there. And we know that you are currently um, the market leaders and maybe the only people selling them at the moment. Uh, where can people find out more, uh, Tony, about these? If they visit our website, uh, tilestyle.ie, we actually have a, a Toto hub within the store with actually 12 of the products on display and our customer toilets have them installed so people can actually go in and experience them. Can they use them, yeah? Yes. Right, okay. Well, maybe that'll be something that people can do over the weekend and have a go at the Japanese toilet. And as you say, if it is life transforming, uh, well, then maybe they uh, they will be considering that the next time they're uh, fitting out uh, a new bathroom. Tony Murphy, bathroom sales manager at Tilestyle, thank you very much for bringing the washlet to us on the home show today. You're very welcome. Now, let me know if you'd like a Japanese loo in your home. And moreover, if you'd be prepared to pay the two or three thousand euro it costs to have one installed. Uh, what would you like most about it? Would you spend more time in there for a start? Well, now, after the break, with materials increasingly scarce and inflation hurting absolutely everybody right now, Roisin Murphy will be here with some top tips on renovating the house with a few extra bob you might have lying around. So pop the kettle on and join me here after the break here on the Home Show on News Talk. We seem to have had, and it was quite inadvertent actually a kind of a Japanese theme running through the show this morning so before the break we were talking all about Japanese toilets very very interesting conversation if that's your bag of fish uh, and of course we looked at bonsai and the art of growing those tiny trees uh, so with that in mind we thought we'd hang on to that theme uh, welcome back Roisin Murphy of course to this segment of the show uh, Roisin it's lovely to talk to you again um, and uh, we, we are going to stay with Asian themes today and talk about something that I absolutely love but I know it's an acquired taste and that's the whole area of lacquering. It's lacquering. I mean, traditionally, it's about 7,000 years old, believe it or not. And it comes, now the word lacquer actually is a Sanskrit word apparently. And it's really about the, the shells of uh, decayed aphids. That was usually what made the hard surface. But there's also, it also came from a tree, a special poisonous tree, I won't attempt to pronounce it, which became a waterproof um material that you put on it on, on wood um so and it once it, it was a resin from that tree and you coated it on wood or metal and when it reacted to the sunshine it formed a, a waterproof coating on materials so it's in evidence from 7000 years ago they had a lacquer a red lacquer bowl appeared in the yaman period of the Japanese dynasty. And very, very interestingly, it is one of those arts that has continued right the way through up to modern day. If you're looking at your kitchen cabinet and you're seeing it lovely and shiny, it's a lacquer. 
and we see, we use the same technology on our floors to protect them, the woods and stuff. So that's what we're talking about, lacquering. Now, for me, I suppose the biggest association in Ireland would be Eileen Gray. She made this extraordinarily famous lacquered black screen that I had my hands on years ago. It's made of tiny little pieces, and it had a big period in the kind of in in that in that kind of heavy, you know, Coco Chanel period of this minimalist design. But we would also associate it with what you would see is screens that have painted bonsai trees in gold on them, these kind of very decorated, beautiful jewellery boxes as well. So it's got quite a minimalist association and a maximalist association. And actually, that's exactly what I think of when I think of that lacquering service, because I I, it, I know it went out of vogue, probably from, I don't know, certainly pre-Victorian, Edwardian, that kind of period. But uh, when I think of it, I'm thinking about fire screens, maybe dressing tables, uh, wall panelling. That was very much um, nearly back in the Art Deco period. So like nearly even the turn of the 20th century. And it got massively popular, didn't it? It was massively popular. You can buy it. You can see it in in trinket boxes and things like that if you want a a kind of reduced piece. You know what I mean? And it's very, very, very coveted still with little vases and things. And what they did was they painted gold and metals onto lacquer. It was a very distinctive technique. But I suppose the thing is it's still very prevalent, a highly polished thing. It's still a very sought-after thing. It's called ebonizing. In, say, modern furniture, they'll ebonize a piece of furniture because the technology has changed, obviously. We now have a kind of cellulose spray that goes on. And in a way, this is the funny one. It stayed really relevant in terms of technology because of cars, because they actually used to lacquer cars. Can you believe that? They put coats of lacquer onto motor cars when they first arrived. And then they realized yeah, it's a bit because it's a little bit soft. There's a little bit of purchase in a proper lacquer. So then they developed, obviously, the metallic coating. And we, we see it on our nails as well. It's the same thinking of lacquering. So it still stayed all the way through in terms of, of um, relevance to the modern era. No, that's very interesting. So I hadn't thought about the cars and certainly the nails and nail art is such a big thing nowadays. I suppose we're carrying on that tradition in some ways. But when you were talking there about technique, Roisin, um, I'm thinking that there is an enormous uh, level of skill. Um, so was it considered then a very delicate art form maybe in, in Asia and, and then as it migrated across Europe? I think it was considered, it started off as obviously practical purposes of protecting bowls of waterproofing things that's you know essentially instead of before clay was developed or maybe in tandem with clay they would have it's you think about it's an early day plastic you have to they were kind of before the period say 14 to 17 thousand years ago people were hunter gatherers whatever vessels they had had to be portable you know fired earth broke so that's where it began but because of its lustrous nature it kind of has stayed in vogue. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit like baskets. They've, they're, they're one of these very ancient things that, you know, interior designers love. They're easy to wipe. They clean down. Because I, so I think it's its practical nature. The application of the kind of decorative bit, for me, I think, I'm, I'm, I think if you have an original piece, obviously, well done you, or you have something on a trinket or a little box. But for me, I, I think... I, I really like it in this minimalist fashion. I'm, I'm not so gone on the full 
but I could be convinced. Let me know what you think, actually, listeners, because it, it is a kind of a Marmite thing. Lots of people just like something dead plain. And actually, I think it's unusual. Uh, we associate Japan with, with very minimalist and uh, neutral kind of colours. And then you have this absolutely gorgeous uh, metallic or, or shiny lacquering. So it's very interesting uh, mix there. So let me know whether you like that or not by uh, texting some 53106. And if you have a piece of Japanese lacquer from one of the Ming dynasties, well, by all means, let us know about that. <laughs> now, Je- um, Roisin, I wanted to talk yeah. to you today. You've an exciting weekend and actually a busy weekend lined up. You're in the RDS. Yes, in the RDS speaking. Um, and yes, I haven't been there for some years, as everybody's but we have an all-female lineup. It's quite exciting. Um, so there's Patricia Perra, Lorraine Keane and myself are headlining it this year. And my speciality is, as always, budget, believe it or not. Um, I know I come across below the budget, Murphy, but I actually do love um, hacks and tricks to keep costs down, particularly in this time where building materials are now at an all-time scarcity. You'll go in and find the same, you know what I mean, the Brexit and the, the whole impact of... Um, ships being empty for a number of months has impacted our supply chain. So people are having to be kind of inventive. So that's really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about ways in which you can, if you've no builder and you've no budget, what you can do. Okay, so this is the other home show that's taking place in the RDS this weekend (laughs) and people can go along if they want. But we are going to pick your brains because you're on the real home show now. Uh, And we're going to look at some of the stuff that you will be talking about there. So this is, uh, I suppose, household hacks for want of a better thing that people maybe can do as weekend projects. Uh, So what kind of things are you going to be recommending? Okay, well, the first, I have this, if they're not so much weekend hacks as things you can do. Say, for instance, you want to change up the front of your house. You can paint your windows. Speaking of lacquer, like most people think to change the front of the house, you have to change the windows or do whatever it is. But in actual fact, if you PVA coat your front windows, you can paint them. You can go for the trendy black. You can even do them with a spot of yellow. You, there is so much new technology in paint at the moment that you can literally spray a wall in granite. It looks like you've, you've, you've a stone wall. Now, that, it's not for me that one, I have to say. I don't like it. But what I'm saying is paint technology has come to such an extent that you can do almost anything. You can even insulate a wall. There is paint out there that insulates walls. It gives sound insulation. It gives heat insulation. So there are things that you really only need to go to your hardware shop or your paint supplier and buy the paint. And maybe if it's windows up high, obviously you have to be careful because uh, painters, <laughs> in fairness, have a head for height. They do all the proper health and safety things if you're doing anything yourself to be really careful. So that's my number one favorite thing is paint. I think you can put it on floors. You can redo, you can almost paint a floor on. You can do anything. You can stencil on floors. Big favorite at the moment is actually wall stencils. Now, we're not talking about the 90s small stencil, Sinead. We're talking about A1 size or A2 size stencils. So that's like a big, huge print. And you cut them out and you put them on the walls. Now, they can be, if you, you, can, you can do a drawing yourself, or alternatively, you can actually print out, say, a design that you like on a computer and cut it out. You get a sheet of acetate paper, you cut out the design, and then you just, with a very thin coat or a roller, you roll it on and put it around the walls. And people are even doing it on the ceiling. So it gives the fake effect of a really, really expensive 
block wood wallpaper, something that you'd get from coal and sun. You can do yourself and you can do that one in the weekend. Right. So massive stencils. Oh, that's dr- dramatic wall art right there. I've been doing painting myself um, at home over the last few weeks. And it's something that's so simple to do and actually can change the whole theme and feel and vibe on a wall in a room uh, or a section of your house. OK, now, are is it still a good idea and are there savings to be made with self bills? OK, self build is I have to say, one of the hardest things you will ever do, but one of the most rewarding. It's, 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 you leap of faith, bit of courage, and Google. But it essentially means that instead, the main contractor does not build everything. He organizes everybody. Just remember that. But he has insurances and all sorts of things, and, and he has a guaranteed speed. So self-build is for people who are happy enough to cover their own insurances on their house insurance, which you would pay normally in an ordinary contract, but also happy to organize people who say, you want to get the block layer in, you want to get the plumber in, you want to get the electrician in, and that you're not paying what you normally pay your contractor. So it's very good for simple builds. And it's a really popular movement um, where people will build their own houses from self-build. But you need to have time to dedicate it to it, and you need to have a bit of courage again and to be educated. I also think, use an architect. There's nothing wrong with getting a set of drawings, talking to an architect. But what it is is basically you're going to do all the contracting. And I have to say, I've had clients who've done it and I thought, oh my God, how are you going to do this? A really complicated uh, build we did up in Fibsburg, which involved mono sheets of glass and all sorts of stuff. And to be fair, she was a television producer and she did the whole thing. And they saved a hundred thousand euro. No, no question about it. They brought their budget, went from 180,000 to 80,000. So it does, it can provide significant savings, but it, it is a job. So somebody in the house needs to take it on like a real job. And then uh, mainline sort of what's his name's program on Channel 4. Grand, Grand Designs. Designs. That's right. Yes. Where you'll see mainly all self bills. It can be done. On an ordinary home extension, it'll at the moment, they're saying it saves minimum 10% on the overall contract price. Right. OK. Well, that sounds like not one for the faint hearted, but also very rewarding, <laughs> as you say, if you're prepared to be project manager on board for it. Uh, now, finally, Roisin, um, the kitchen. We love an old kitchen on the home show. Yeah. And I know that you have been busy in your own kitchen creating your yes. masterpiece. <laughs> so talk to me about kitchens. Uh, you know, oh. I, I, we've all be we've all seen the ones that kind of you can use the CAD design and design your own and worktops go here and sinks go there. Is that a good idea to get that design before you go out and buy? I think everybody is so idiosyncratic in how they cook and eat. Okay, like there is basics in kitchen designs where you use the triangle, the, the cooker, the fridge and the sink all have to be in a certain relationship. But for me, I'm not, I've gone off on a tangent here talking about kitchens, so I have to reel myself back in because I'm about to talk about a dry and a wet kitchen, which we can do another day. What I'm going to say to you is in terms of budget and doing it yourself, there are a couple of ways to kind of cut the cost and do it yourself in terms of kitchens. Okay, have the basic design there. You will know the kitchen triangle. It's a fairly simple thing that they have to be, don't put your fridge on the other side of a wall if you have a four meter uh, wide span and the kitchen in between. But what you can do is do things like, say a catering kitchen. If you have no money, you can buy secondhand catering um, sinks and dishwashers even and plumb them in. There, there will be literally very funky industrial style and then slowly pick off the pieces that you want 
Generally, it's always in a stainless steel finish. You can get pre-cut sheets of ply. You might insert um, from a flat pack kitchen. Ikea, for instance, I did my own in bits and pieces where I had, say, bought a very expensive range. did the mecha profile thing uh, and a flat pack piece. So you get a, quite a funky look. Now, you have to also be, be mindful of the fact that the first six plumbing and electrics, they're not that elastic. You know, if you make a decision or a position of plumbing, you're tied to it. It doesn't matter if your self-building or kitchen sitter is going in. If you've decided where you're going to put the water, that's the most important decision you will make before anything in terms of kitchen design. So be careful what you put your water. Um, then you can do done deals. I've seen people uh, where they go to done deal, they buy kitchen cabinetry where somebody, there's always somebody thrown out a kitchen somewhere. You can go and buy it and they repaint it and remodel the entire thing for their own home. Particularly older kitchens tend to be made from very rigid, good quality carcasses. So there is another one for the books. And a flat pack kitchen, I, um, I decided to try it myself because I'm always talking about it and I do it on the program. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with my screwdriver, my spirit level. Uh, it can be done by uh, an older lady on her own, such as me. No problem. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, if you want to see Roisin live and in person, you can do so today. Yes, if you happen to be in Dublin uh, at the, the home show and uh, she'll be able to chat to you there about all of that. Uh, Roisin, we've a couple of minutes left. Uh, we don't have an objective design because we're not in studio nope. today, but we do have a building. What have you brought us? ESB headquarters in Dublin, uh, the new Grafton Architects building, which has replaced Sam Stevens's. Uh, most, well, most controversial replacement of the Fitzwilliam Street Terrace and um, I absolutely dreaded going past it. I was so like, cause I've, like I've, as a, somebody who's sat in buildings, I, really, I love it so much. Oh my God, it was one of, they couldn't have made a more beautiful interpretation of a Georgian terrace without being pastiche. It is, has to be my favourite building in Ireland at the moment. I absolutely love it. And I love it also because and I'm sure they're going to be going, how dare you even comment like this? Because I particularly like it because it's not grey. A lot of architecture and a lot of modern architecture seems to be of concrete. It's a huge scale architecture. What I love about this, or grey because we're a granite, robust kind of male city, this is red. It is that beautiful Dublin blush colour. And boy, oh boy, I'm telling you, it is one of the best buildings. And it also makes me incredibly optimistic for... Um, O'Connell Street, because I know Grafton Architects are also involved in the new redesign of O'Connell Street, um, linking into the back of where the Ilac Centre is. But this building, they have taken the proportion of the Georgian window and they have absolutely expressed it. It's like a, a little bit of a modern poem about uh, the rhythm of Georgian windows. OK, and we'll expect great things actually for O'Connell Street then, because I must say it is a bit raggedy and run down and it definitely needs a architect's eye and who better than Grafton Architect uh, who ha have won so many prizes and done such beautiful things yeah. with buildings uh, that we have. All right, Roisin, thank you for that and thank you yeah. for bringing us to, uh, that this week uh, in the middle of your very, very busy weekend and we will uh, look forward to seeing you in the RDS and seeing what you have to say about all of those things. And that is all we have time for this week. If you'd like to get involved in the show, if you have a question uh, for us or a topic you'd like to hear on the show, a guest you'd like us to have in, well then please drop us a line, a text 
text at 53106 for 30 cent or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and we will read those during the week. And don't forget to check out the Home Show podcast, which is always up on the News Talk website and indeed on other podcast websites. Thank you to Simon Keane, who is producing today and Stephen McLoon on sound. Anton Savage is up next. Have a great weekend. And remember, we're here every Saturday at 8 a.m. Tired of trying to run your office from home? The Mill Enterprise Hub in Drogheda offers hot desking and office solutions in a supportive startup community for businesses and remote workers. They provide members with 24-7 access, free car parking, one gigabit broadband, meeting rooms, soundproof pods for all your Zoom calls, mentoring, podcasting and vlogging facilities. There's no lengthy contracts. Oh, and did we mention there's free tea and coffee too? Email us today to arrange your tour at startup at themilldrogheda.ie.